And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. What a great weekend uh, this is. I always look forward to Labor Day weekend here at Temple Baptist Church. Now that seems strange. Leslie and I, we were talking about that as we were coming to church this morning. That in most churches, Labor Day weekend is not necessarily the highlight of the church here. I mean, usually you have a lot of folks who are gone and a lot of things are taking place and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, in most churches I've been in, I've not necessarily looked forward to Labor Day weekend to come to church and and to preach and, and to share. But temple is different. And one of the things that is different about it is this is the weekend when a lot of the college students are coming back and they're moving into the dorms and and uh, those for the first time. It's, it's a great time to see new energy and new faces. Yesterday as I was at tailgating, I saw some students I had not seen, obviously, over the whole summer. So it was great to see some of them back. It was great to catch up with some who had gone on and had found jobs and who were not necessarily enjoying those jobs. And I got to kind of talk to them about work and all of those kinds of things. And, um, you know, that, that was good. And certainly to be able to come and know of newer folks who are joining us here. I even have some of my Zachary people that, uh, that I pastored. I saw some of those families yesterday. We have one here with us this morning. We'll have others with us during the 1115 service. So it's just exciting to see how God is just drawing people to our family. And uh, that is exciting for me, uh, especially this weekend. Also, for some of you who remember, it was this time last year we were celebrating our birthday. So I guess it's time to celebrate again, right? Last year was a big birthday. It was our 90th anniversary, our 90th birthday at Temple Baptist Church. So this weekend, we kind of celebrate our anniversary. We celebrate our birthday. We're 91 years old. Looking pretty good for 91, right? I mean, it is great to know and see how God has blessed us through all these years. We give him thanks for his faithfulness to us. We, we hear stories. We see stories. Hey, if you want to know what it was like back in those days, you ask Dale Oden. He was here. He can tell you all about it. As they came together in the very first meeting or so, and not Sadell, Dale, all right? But one of the things that we looked at, even as we think about this weekend, we think about the history of Temple Baptist Church. Uh, one of the things that we noticed as we prepared, as we studied, as we got ready for our 90th anniversary last year was this emphasis that our church had in the very beginning upon three disciplines, upon three practices. As a matter of fact, if you go back and study the history of Temple, you'll find that there were three practices that they wanted to make sure that they were known for. Temple Baptist Church wanted to be known for praying, for giving, and for witnessing. Those three practices. Now think about that. Those things to undergird who we were, that we would be a praying people, we would be a giving people, and we would be a witnessing people. Well, some of you who've been here over this last year, you probably can tell that my sermon series have somewhat mirrored those practices. That in the beginning of the year, we talked about prayer and we gave attention to prayer in our personal lives as we read through the scripture. This last summer or so, we've talked about giving. And today I want to pivot, if I can, 
to the new sermon series from the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at selected passages over the next few weeks from chapter 1 all the way into chapter 9. And I want to challenge us to be people who tell, people who share the story of Christ, people who tell our story of how Christ changed us, that we would be people giving voice to the gospel. So Mark chapter 1, that's where we're going to begin today as we see how Mark told them, John the Baptist told them, how even the Father himself told them. And he specifically told them that Jesus is God's Son. Look at this this morning, beginning in verse 1. Let's just read that verse as we think about this together. There in verse 1, Mark says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. So just stop there, just on the first verse, okay? Notice John Mark is coming, and he is telling us about the good news of Jesus Christ. Here, what he is going to teach us is that Jesus, again, is the Son of God. That's going to be reaffirmed in the verses to come. But he is going to tell them that Jesus is unique. He is different. He is distinctive. He is the Son of God. Of God. We tell them today that Jesus is the Son because we were told by Mark, by John, by the Father Himself that Jesus was the Son. Now, think about this guy named Mark, okay? The book bears his name. What do we know about Mark? We know that he was a cousin of Barnabas. We know that he was enlisted on the first missionary journey that his cousin Barnabas and the Apostle Paul went upon. And as they took Mark, and as they went about their business, their ministry, their mission, something happened. And something discouraged John Mark. I don't know if he got homesick. Now listen, those of you who are college students who are just getting here, you might get homesick just for a little while, right? Because when you see what Rustin is, you'll be like, home? What do you mean? Home. I tell people I wasn't born here, but I got here as soon as I could. Because I love this place. It'll get better. Hey, it'll get better. It will. Once you figure out the one-way streets and all that kind of stuff, it'll get better. It'll be fine. But John Mark, he was on this mission and perhaps he got homesick. I don't know. We know he had challenges. We know that he deserted his cousin Barnabas and the Apostle Paul. He just left. He went back home. So when the time came for a second missionary journey... Paul and Barnabas looked around and they began talking about their team and Barnabas said, hey, I want to take John Mark. Paul said, absolutely not. He's not going with me anywhere. You remember that last time? That last time we were preaching Jesus, we were out there on the mission field, we were doing what we were supposed to do and that guy, that young John Mark, he just couldn't handle it. He left us. I'm not taking somebody along with me that's going to leave me. Well, Barnabas... Of course, the great encourager said, John Mark's going with us. And, and the scripture tells us that there was a sharp dissension between the two. In other words, they had a good old Baptist fight, all right? They disagreed with each other sharply. And what did our Lord do? Well, Lord, our Lord took their division and he multiplied the ministry. I love the way he did that. He took their division... And what he did is he formed two different teams, 
where John Mark would go with Barnabas and Silas would go with Paul and God just multiplied his kingdom. The gospel was going forth in a greater way because of their division. Aren't you proud we have a God that can overcome our division and all our flaws and all those things? I, I love that about our God. So John Mark goes. And you know what? John Mark, well, he proves to be profitable, even as Paul will say later. And John Mark, according to history, would go to Peter and be Peter's interpreter. As, as a matter of fact, many people would think this is like the gospel of Peter. Because Mark was the one who was writing for Peter and had talked to Peter. And he was there in Rome with Peter. And he is writing to these Roman Christians. This John Mark. About the gospel. May, may I stop here? It's not really in my notes or so. But may I just stop here and say this. I love a God who sees our flaws and failures and still will use us to tell the story of the good news. I'm, I'm so grateful that he didn't disqualify John Mark when John Mark left. When his faith failed, that he didn't just cast him to the side, but he, he brought John Mark around and he is using him and is still using him, obviously, by allowing him to pen this gospel. I am so grateful for a God who loves us. And yes, when we are human and when we fail him, he will still continue to encourage us and work in us to provide his plan and his work for our lives. It's a wonderful story. John Mark, here he is. That's his background. And here again is what he says. He says, the beginning of the gospel, the gospel. Now you've heard that many of you all your life, the idea of the gospel. Oftentimes, you have heard it applied to the first four books of the New Testament. But may I say to you that only in the second century did that term gospel designate those first four books. The gospel itself, well, it spoke of the good news. Literally, that's what it means, good news of Jesus. The good news of the salvation and the work that he had accomplished. Now, that word gospel was also used in the Roman Empire. It would be used to uh, speak of joyful tidings, joyful news that would somehow encompass the empire itself. It, it could talk about great things that had happened. It could be used to proclaim the birthday of the emperor. The good news is that the emperor has a birthday. So think of it this way. It is the joyful tidings. Some of you, you know what it's like to have good news. This morning, you can tell there's a, a great spirit hovering above us. I wished I could say it was the spirit of God. I believe the spirit of God's here. But there's something else. And I think that was the victory that Louisiana Tech had last night is kind of descended upon this place. Now, y'all are not as bad as the Baton Rouge people, the Zachary people. No offense. Not quite as bad. When I walked in after an LSU defeat, it was the most somber, <laughs> defeating type of service usually I ever preached. I can't tell you. It's just like all of a sudden negativism had just descended upon the place. Life was horrible. So this morning, I mean, that was good news, right? You've probably talked about it. The good news that Tech defeated Northwestern State University. How good is that? I didn't think I had that many alums from Northwestern State here this morning. Maybe I need to back up. 
Yeah, you talk, you talk about it. Talk about the good news of that. Hey, you talk about the good news. Hey, Rustin beat Neville. Yeah, is that, not, is that not good news? Yeah. Cedar Creek beat Loyola. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about it. it's been a good weekend. Y'all been on Twitter. You've been telling everybody about all these things, right? I think about Mark. and Think about the good news that he had. Could you imagine if he had all the social media today? I'm not sure he would have pinned it quite like this. He may have posted some stuff on Facebook for those of us who are 35 or over. For those of us, those younger who use that, you know, they twit and all that kind of stuff. They, uh, he might have posted something on Twitter at that point. He might have let them, because everybody want to know. Listen, listen, when something good is happening, you want people to know. You want them to know that you're getting married. You want them to know that you've had a new baby in the family. You want them to know that you've graduated, that you've got a job. You want them to know these good things. And you and I, as believers, we have the best news of all. We have the joyful tidings. We have the good news. We have the message, the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. And because of that, that is a story we need to tell over and over and over and over. Mark says this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. In the Hebrew, Joshua, Yahshua. In the Aramaic, Yeshua. In the Greek, Jesus. In all languages, as you look at it, as you dissect it, it means Yahweh God saves. That is the message we have. That our God saves. He is the Christ, the anointed one, the one who has been divinely commissioned. And yes, he is the son of God. He is divine. The person we serve today this one, Jesus Christ, is not just a mere man. He is not just some martyr. He is just not some figure of history. He is not simply a teacher of good things. Our Jesus is the Son of God. He is God Himself. He has reflected the salvation of the Father to us. It is about Him. Mark told them. We'll continue to read. Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel. Literally, it means a beginning. Because what he's going to show us here is how John the Baptist stepped upon the scene to, to start a new era of declaration, a new era of the good news. Verse 2, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and he preached, saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, 
but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark, as is customary in his, in his book, gets right to the point. He moves us so quickly from one scene to the other so that he can show us the good news. He tells us that he's announcing that good news to us, but he also reminds us that there is this like new beginning of the good news as John the Baptist comes upon the scene. Now, why is that? Well, between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, there were approximately 400 years. We usually call them the 400 silent years. No prophetic voice of God, no prophetic voice to speak to the nation or to God's people. During all these different transitions that they would go through from the Greek rule to the Seleucid rule to the Roman rule, through all of those dynasties, never a prophetic voice, never a prophetic word. Let's stop there for a moment. How sad would that be? To know that you go that long as a people without hearing a fresh word from God. It was, it was as though he just, he punctuated his message through the prophet Malachi and he left them, at least through the prophetic voice, he left them for 400 years. How difficult that must have been. And again, to deal with all the transitions. Look at world history. Alexander comes. The Greeks, they come. The Seleucids, after the Greek empire is broken up. You, you see the Romans who have, now, who have now demonstrated their dominion over this area. And while they're going through all those transitions, no prophet... No Elijah, no Moses, no one seems to stand to give the prophetic voice. See, there's a new beginning now. There's something new happening in the nation, within the people of God. There's something new. I hate I love when something new starts happening among God's people. I love when you can feel the fresh winds of the Holy Spirit blowing among God's people. And there's something new happening. John the Baptist is going to come upon the scene. Oh, he's a different kind of guy. Especially for us when we think about him. We're told in verse 6 that he's clothed with camel's hair and that he has a leather belt around his waist. That seems strange to us unless you're from Minden, Louisiana and then it's just kind of like <laughs> Robert, right? Sharks, where you, I mean, a lot of you, you know, you grew up, you kind of wore those things. But anyway, you thought I was going to say Bogalusa. Actually, Minden people dress better than Bogalusa. But anyway, <laughs> it would be strange to us. It'd be strange to us to think that he's dressing in such a way. But this dress represented the prophets. Go back and look at 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. Elijah himself will wear this dress. It is no accident that Mark includes this here to remind us. Because in the scriptures, in Isaiah, and then of course in Malachi, the fusion of those verses in verse 2 and verse 3, we're reminded that there was this prophet like Elijah. Just as Malachi had said, there would be this forerunner. John the Baptist came with a new word. 
He had a strange outfit. He had a strange diet of eating locusts and wild honey. Strange to us, but not strange to the prophets. Because John was out in the desert. He was out in the wilderness. And he was preaching the good news. He was telling people something new is happening. Repent. Be baptized. He preached a baptism of repentance. In other words, that there is a change that could happen in your life that you could experience. He called them out. The scripture says that people were streaming to them, to him. They were coming from Judea and to, from Jerusalem. They were coming down out of their city and their homes unto the wilderness to hear the prophet once again. Oh, how I believe they had starved for the word. And some of them were now hearing it. And they were coming. They were experiencing it together. It was as though they were being delivered from Egypt once again, the exodus, and being brought into the wilderness to hear God. And John the Baptist had this prophetic ministry. He was speaking. He was preaching. People were coming to be baptized, confessing their sins. And look in verse 7. Look at his message. And he preached saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. He says, This ministry, this word is not about me. What's occurring is not because you see John standing here before you. I want you to hear that there is someone who is coming. There is one who is much greater than I am. Now that statement in and of itself was important and significant because people were seeing John and they were hearing this prophet after all these years and they certainly were looking at him in power and respect. But John said, hey, don't look at me. There is one who's coming. And I'm not even worthy to perform the most menial task. That task of, of bending down with a, when a visitor in, enters the house. That some servants perhaps would do is they would bend down and they would loose the sandals of that guest. Only the lowliest servants would do something like that. Some have even suggested that that was forbidden for Jewish servants. What John says is, I'm not even worthy to do something that menial, that humility. I'm not worthy to do that. Because there's one that's coming that's greater. Who is that? Jesus, the Son of God. He says that that one will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you who have been Baptist for many years, you're getting nervous on me all of a sudden. You thought I'd skip that verse this morning. Kind of move on. Let's not talk about the baptism of the Spirit. Listen to what John's saying. John says, I immerse you in water. That's what baptism means. To baptize means to immerse. He says, I immerse you in water. But there is one who is coming that will immerse you in the Spirit of God. He says, I can take care of these things as you come to demonstrate your repentance. I can give you this outward rite of baptism. I can administer that to you. 
But only the one who is coming can administer to you an inward right of change through the Spirit of God. I can baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Spirit. You know, I think of that. There are many days when I enter into the water, thankfully, and I get to baptize people. Next Sunday, you need to come. Welcome back Sunday. I think we're going to baptize eight, nine people. What a day. But I cannot change anybody's heart or life. I can baptize them, celebrate the right with them. It is an outward expression. But only the Lord himself can change somebody spiritually. I'm identifying a little bit with what John says here. Because John says, hey, I've baptized you with water. But he's going to baptize you in the spirit. He's going to change you inwardly. I celebrate that moment where I got to be baptized that Sunday night when Brother Holland, those big old hands, look, I wasn't worried about falling. He was going to hold me. He was the biggest hands I've ever seen in my life of that preacher. I was just thinking, will he ever give me breath again? Because he was holding that handkerchief over my nose. Oh, what a great day, though, to be baptized that night as I celebrated. I still am thankful to God that I was able to do that. But I recognize every day the water did not change me. The preacher did not change me. The Holy Spirit of God convicted me, regenerated me, indwelled me, baptized me, sealed me. The Holy Spirit was the one that made the difference in my life. You see, Jesus was coming to baptize in the Spirit. Why? Because, he, again, he was the Son of God. He's different. Only, only the Son, only the divine being could come and bring the Spirit in such a way. Let me do this very quickly. These last few verses just mentioned to you that not only did Mark tell us, and not only did John the Baptist, but the Father himself in these verses. The Father himself. Beautiful picture. Verse 9, it came to pass in those days... That Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. So you've got the Judeans. You've got those in Jerusalem. They're all coming. It seems like a great group of them. But there is one that comes from Nazareth of Galilee. It's Jesus. Even now, almost like a substitute. The one coming. And he surrenders himself to be baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, I don't have time, nor is this the focus of Mark, nor myself this morning, I think, to flesh this out. But let me just simply say, Jesus was not baptized upon his repentance in his life. The Lord I serve, Jesus Christ, is a sinless individual, a sinless man, a sinless God-man. He has never, ever fallen short of the glory of God. He has always fulfilled the glory of God. So he was not baptized for repentance like so many of the others. We could talk about speculation and maybe it's validating John the Baptist. Maybe it's initiating his public ministry. There are all kinds of reasons we could talk about. Mark doesn't take it up here. I'm not going to necessarily take it up here. 
I just want you to know that Jesus comes, as Matthew says, to fulfill the righteous plan, the righteousness of the Father, to fulfill the plan. And he, su- he submits himself to the baptism of John. Look, verse 10. This is what I want to focus just a moment on. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he's baptized. He comes up out of the water. The word is a word which means to arise or to be resurrected. He goes into the deathly waters, if you will, and he comes up. And in that moment, you have this Trinitarian experience. The heavens parting. May I say, this would have even been a greater... This would have been a greater moment of wonder than the eclipse ever was, right? Now, I enjoy the eclipse, and I'm proud some of you have too. And obviously, you can still see. I am grateful for that. But think of this. The heavens part. The heavens are rent. They open. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And the Father speaks. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this fellowship and communion together. And again, the validation, the recognition of Jesus and His ministry and His work. Verse 11, in the words, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Oh, I could go in so many different directions. Don't have time this morning, but I could go in so many different directions. I'd love to talk to you about what Robert Lewis says to us fathers about how there are moments where we should emulate the the voice of the Father in just looking at our sons and saying, you are loved and I'm proud of you. Those two words, those two truths somehow release a son. And perhaps we could talk about that today and we could look at it. But I want you to focus more upon the idea that the Father looks at Jesus. And He says, you are my Son. I love you. I am pleased with you. And in so many ways, He blesses the continued purpose of Jesus to save those who are lost And to demonstrate the glory of the Father. The Father said, He's the Son. See, Mark told us, John the Baptist told us, the Father told us. That's a story we need to still tell. Right? He is the Son. When I come... When I come here to this place, I recognize that He is the Son. When I walk about my business from day to day, I recognize He is the Son. It makes a difference. He's not just a man. He's not just a martyr. He is God. That's the reason I'm driven to worship Him. That is the reason I'm driven to serve Him. That is the reason I'm driven to obey Him. 
Because he's the son. Tell people he is the son of God. He's not just one option. He is the only option. He is not just one savior. He is the only savior. He is not just a son. In so many ways, he is the son. Unique, different, distinct from any of us. And he deserves our worship. I want to say this morning, one of two things. One, you need to make your mind up about the Son of God. You need to determine in your heart, is he the Son? Is he divine? Perhaps no clear explanation has ever been given except that of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said in our hearts and lives, when we think about Jesus, we have to come to a determination. And if we come to a determination, we'll have to determine one of three things. That Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or either he's Lord. There are no exceptions. If you look at his life, if you hear the witness here, he's one of those three things. If Jesus had this self-consciousness that he was God, that he was the Son of God... And that he promoted that, that he went out speaking about those kinds of things. If he did that and he's not the son of God, then he's either a liar or a lunatic. In other words, he didn't have the mental capacity to understand. People who today would claim to be God, we would dismiss them perhaps because of their mental capabilities. And perhaps that's the way you would dismiss Jesus. Or if he allowed all of this to happen... And he affirmed this sonship over and over. Then folks, he couldn't be just a good teacher like I hear some people say. Oh, well, he just taught good things. He's a good teacher. No, if he promoted himself as the son of God and he's not the son of God, then he must be a liar. And friends, a liar is never a good thing. But if you cannot come to those conclusions in your heart and life, that only leaves one option. And that is he's Lord. He's the Son of God. Oh, back in those passages from Isaiah and Malachi, Isaiah in particular, the word that is used there to prepare for the way of the Lord, that is Yahweh God of the Old Testament. And now we're using that same terminology, Lord, to describe Jesus and his ministry. Why? Because he's God. And if you come to that Realization in your heart and life, your, that recognition that He's Lord, that He's God, then that makes a difference in how you respond to His message, to His salvation. If He is Lord, that means you surrender and submit to Him. He came and He died and He rose again. He gave Himself so that you and I could have salvation. If He is Lord, then that means that you and I by faith ought to trust Him. Not make him our hobby. Too many people today are living as Jesus is their hobby. I'm talking about making Jesus your Lord. So first you've got to make up your mind. Is he the son of God? And if you've come to that conviction in your heart, then that means you need to tell others that he's the son of God. Because that's the good news. And in a world today where bad news abounds... The good news of Jesus is still what transforms people and lives. So today, have you 
given your heart to him and accepted him and recognized his lordship that he is the son of God. Two, if you have, will you tell people? Will you let them know just as you've been told? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time together to be able to just be challenged. Father, we are so grateful that today our conviction, our trust, our assurance is in your son who is our Savior. And God, I pray in this place that you would wash across us with your Spirit. Yes, that you would even speak to us. And those who are lost would be saved. Those of us who are saved, that we would be challenged and motivated once again to tell your story over and over and over. Will you pray it? In Jesus' name.